Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. John chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. First John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have come now to the sixth and final week in the season of Easter. And one of the wonderful aspects of this season is the schedule of readings that we use as a church has been taking us through the upper room discourse of Jesus and the writings of John the Apostle as he sought to apply that doctrine to the church. And so we have just read in John 15 and 1 John 5 messages that come from the heart of Jesus Christ for his people that we would be able to love others And in so doing, prove that we are truly loved by God and received by God. One of the things that is important to see is in the scriptures, love for God is never divorced from love for neighbor. And in fact, the test of authenticity, if you had to put one uh, one statement together to describe the epistle of 1 John, it would be that those who love God love their neighbors, and those who do not love their neighbors are not loved by God, that there is no reality. I think that if you had to sum up the central teaching of the ideas in 1 John, it would really come home to this. This is how he is closing out his letter. There is a reality without which one cannot claim reality with God. And so what John is doing and Jesus also is doing in the upper room is he's, he's seeking to encourage his disciples in 
the love of God. And so after the resurrection takes place, then the disciples go back and they're rethinking everything that they've heard. They're remembering what was said to them. And that's why our schedule of readings takes us back to the upper room discourse, even though it happened before the cross. So we spent the first few weeks in Easter looking at some of the resurrection accounts. And then, just like the disciples must have done, they went back and tried to remember what Jesus had said to them. And John actually tells us this a few times in his gospel. For example, in John chapter 2, he says something to the effect of, they didn't understand what he meant, but after he rose from the dead, then they believed. And so Jesus' resurrection opens up for us a great central issue, which is how can we as wretched sinners ever find communion and love and reception with God? And Jesus tells his disciples quite plainly that his death on the cross for them is the enveloping of them into the love of God. And so I am deeply overjoyed to explore these passages with you today. I I love what these passages say to us as God's people. They give us a complete freedom in knowing that we are accepted by God, and they empower us to be radically, joyfully loving of those around us, even when it's difficult to do so. That's really when the test of love is passed or failed. I want to look at five, passage, five ideas within these two readings. I want to first look at the perfect love of God. As Jesus explains, he has the same love that the Father has for him, for the disciples. You can think of it kind of like an L shape, if you wish. The love that the Father is having for the Son, who is now incarnate, is transmitting that love around him. He's, he's spreading it abroad to the people that he's called to himself. I want to look at Jesus' commandment to then continue in that love. It is not enough that the disciples have a few years with Jesus Christ in his ministry. They must continue in living in that love and and fulfilling his commandment. I want to look at the nature of that commandment to love our brothers. And to, in fact, it goes beyond this. Not only do we have to love our brothers, we also have to love our neighbors. And Jesus' teaching, although not in this passage, is even stronger than that. We have to not only love our brothers and our neighbors, we have to love our enemies. We won't be looking in that, but just think about what that requires. It requires a radical Christ-like humility and imitation, and we can only do that if we are recipients of God's love and believe the same things that Jesus believed about the nature of the Father, that he's a God who vindicates the righteous and a God with extreme grace and mercy, which is designed to flow through us. And that's where John takes his epistle. He, He communes with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And then as the apostolic teaching is coming to the church, he says, therefore, that love must continue to flow down. You can think of it like a mountaintop where the, the rivers are flowing down and cascading and they're, they're touching every place on that mountain. They don't stop until they reach the sea. And so the obedience of love, this idea that love for God is not feelings, love for God is not an affirmation of thoughts or just warm fuzzies in the, in the heart of a person, but it must be expressed. 
Love that is not expressed is not true love. And this is why, if you were here during the Sunday school hour, we spent so much time talking about the fact that God is a trinity. There is a flow of love between the Father and the Son, and the Spirit is the overflow of that love into his disciples. And so, not only does that love deliver us from the sort of pride of unbelief, of lack of love for others, it also causes us to overcome the world. We're going to see that that actually is not a separate idea. The way that we overcome the world, which is full of evil, greed, murder, jealousy, pride, self-seeking, all of those things that the world values can only be overcome if we are recipients of God's love and communicate that love to other people. And so I am, as I mentioned earlier, I'm deeply joyful to be able to explore these passages with you because I think what Jesus is teaching his disciples is the most profound reality that one has to have as a disciple is that they are loved by God and that no matter what happens to them in life, they have home, they have a home with God that can never be removed. And so Jesus gives his disciples a very clear and perfect teaching Again, as we said, this is the upper room discourse. You must remember the context here. Jesus is about to go to the cross and stay in a tomb for three days. He knows the disciples will be scattered. He knows that they will forsake him. He tells and prophesies to Peter that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even when Peter boasts that he will never deny the Lord, even if he has to die. And, and Jesus knows, Peter, you cannot die for me. I am one who will die for you. And so he gives his disciples teachings. He gives them words which are supposed to transform not only their minds, but also their hearts, that they would begin to see just at, at the very chief part of the, the iceberg, which, is, which goes down for thousands of feet, just the cap that is, they're able to see on the surface of the nature of the love that the Son has for the disciples. Jesus desires to comfort them. Interestingly, when he promises the Holy Spirit later in this chapter, he says there's one who's going to be coming who is another comforter. And so this means that he himself is their comforter until he's taken away to the cross. He has loved them perfectly, and he explains the perfect love that he's about to complete at the cross as an extension of the love that the Father has for the Son. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. It's a very interesting thing how much theology can be packed into one simple word that's two letters long at the beginning of this sentence, as. In the same way, in the same manner, to the same quality, with the same perfection, the Son has loved the disciples. The Father's love for the Son, we know based on John's gospel, is a perfect, eternal love with complete and total knowledge. Not only is God omniscient, not only does He know everything, He knows all things, but he also has complete and perfect knowledge and fellowship between the members of the Trinity. The Father and the Son know each other perfectly. 
Later, Paul says, who searches the mind of a man but the spirit? Likewise, the spirit searches out the deep things of God. There's this view into who God is that the spirit and the son and the father have perfect love and perfect love requires perfect knowledge. You meet someone who you have a a beginning of a relationship and everything starts off wonderfully. You maybe they become a friend of yours based on some love that they have. Maybe it's a sports team. For others of us, it might be a theological doctrine that they hold. (laughs) But then you start to talk to them and you learn more things. And as your relationship progresses, they do something that is offensive to you or you do something that's offensive to them. Do you see the increase in knowledge has put a strain on the depth and quality of the love? You see, our relationships are filled with sin in these ways. We sin thousands of times per day in thought, in attitude, in way of speaking, in things that we say. We can offend someone, especially in our age, without even realizing it or knowing it. And so our love relationships in our friendships and our fellowships are not like God's. He has perfect knowledge forever, and there is nothing which God must learn about himself in the persons of the Trinity that, that would cause him to despise himself. That is to say, God is completely integrated, and here we are on very holy ground to even be speaking about these things. We are, we are like tiny little ants trying to discuss philosophy. It's impossible for us to comprehend a God who perfectly has a, has a perfect representation and experience of love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There is nothing that is disagreeable in any sense between the Father and the Son. The Son and the Father perfectly know each other and perfectly desire to fulfill and complete each other's will in the economy or, or the working out of redemption. This is why we see Jesus in the garden as he is the mediator. He says to the Father, not your will, Not my will, but your will be done. Even if I have to drink this cup, I've come to do your will. Hebrews tells us that was the heart of the Son in coming to the earth. So there is nothing in the Son that is disagreeable to the Father. As young fathers, there are many things. Some of you have experienced who are older fathers, there are even many more things that are disagreeable between us and our our children. There's, there's an, an effect of sin, and yet God has nothing like this in himself at all. Therefore, the Father's love has been set upon the Son, and it is never going to be removed. The Son cannot change, and therefore the Son cannot displease the Father. The Father and the Son are radically, to use, I have no better phrase, but to say they are in love. It is not a romantic sort of love on a human eros level, but they are radically enveloped in one another. They are consumed with and desire and delight in each other's company. There is a great, it's, it's even impossible to use the word fraternity because they are not brothers, they are father and son. Nevertheless, there is nothing in God that causes any of the members of the Trinity to have any sort of strife or struggle. And again, as I say, these are hard things for us to even discuss. We have to be like little children walking into a room where we're not really supposed to touch anything here. Because even in discussing them, we can fall off into a thousand little errors. What I'm trying to convey is that the love of God within the members of the Trinity is eternal, it is perfect, and it is whole. 
It is not the sort of love which is a cursory acquaintance. It is forever established. In this love, the Father and the Son have a union and agreeableness all together. So, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Though Christ sees their weakness and intemperance, the love of Jesus is from eternity past. This is why the doctrine of election is so important, is that God knows who are his, he knows their failures, and yet he has set his love upon them to be expressed in the cross of Christ in time. That love which was from eternity past has been placed upon his people and he will love them thoroughly. Even though the disciples still have many flaws and failures, Christ's love is set upon them forever. Jesus said over and over again in John's gospel that he will not lose any of the disciples. The father has given him sheep into his sheepfold and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. That includes you. You are not able to snatch yourself out of the Lord's hand. If you are truly one of his disciples, if you are truly one of the sheep of Christ's fold, the good shepherd cannot lose you, no matter how, you, how much you might even struggle and try to jump out of a sheep pen. I heard a very interesting joke this week that I, I have to share now because I've thought of it. Math teacher said there are 10 sheep in a pen and one jumps out. How many are left? All the class says nine, but one boy in the back says none. And the teacher says, you don't understand math. And the little boy says, you don't understand sheep. <laughs> the, the point is that when one sheep gets out, the other sheep will follow. Jesus says, you cannot be snatched out of my hand. Not one of them. Though the son cannot change, though it is impossible for him to need improvement or to remove error to be corrected, he is in need of no transformation. The love of the mediator for his disciples is like the father's love. It is a perfect love, and therefore it is a perfecting love. I hope you have had the pleasure of meeting someone in person where you have spent some time in their company and they've been so full of the grace of the Holy Spirit where you just want to be with them in their presence. And their, their presence has a wonderful effect for you. I, I can think of a few people in my life that I've met in this way and, and being with them is just, it's enjoyable to be in their presence. And there's, there's some sort of holistic relationship that is being formed there, that you're being transformed by the work of the Spirit through their encouragement. That is the sort of perfect love that Jesus has for the disciples, though it has no error in it. The love for the, for the Father, uh, the love of the Father for the Son is a perfect love, and therefore the love of the Son for his disciples is a perfecting love. This means that the love that Jesus has for us as we walk as disciples, it transforms us and it changes us. As his disciples receive this perfect love, they are delivered from fear, they're transformed from pride and self-seeking, and they are those who receive the gift of being self-giving and humble. You see throughout the Gospels, Peter and the other disciples who say things like this. We just often see Peter's words, but the Gospels will often include little phrases here and there, and all the other disciples said the same. These disciples are filled with self-seeking. They want to be made much of. They have an argument at one point, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And they're all, they're all asserting that they are. 
I'm the greatest in the kingdom. And yet, at the, the moment of trial, Peter, who is trying to be the greatest in the kingdom, is exposed as kind of a fraud, in a sense. He runs at the first sign of danger and the first sign of trouble. And yet, the Lord is telling these things to them before it happens. He knows perfectly that they will be scattered and that they will be sifted like wheat. And yet he loves them with an everlasting love. Knowing that they cannot now bear the full extent of his work in their lives, Jesus tells them to abide, or as some translations say, continue in my love. He knows what will take place, and he knows that the work of his transformation is so deep and so thorough that it cannot come in just a single moment. This is a deep encouragement for us as people. We do not come to Lord's Day worship and hear one sermon and hope everything will be fixed. That is not the way that the Lord has established his church. We are given Lord's Day worship and preaching and those scriptures for lifelong transformation. It's not something that happens instantly. He says in John 16 too, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Perhaps you've been in a sermon like that where the sermon or the minister has many more things to say and, and you definitely cannot bear them at that time. Perhaps you've been in one of those sermons under my preaching. Um, the point is that his love is so thorough and so profound that they're not able to experience all of it now. They must grow. They must die to self. They must see continually through their own failures and behaviors that they are much more thoroughly sinful than they've ever thought, and yet at the same time, they are much more deeply accepted and loved than they could ever hope for. This is what Jesus Christ is doing for his disciples. He teaches them how they are to remain in his love by obeying his commandments. You see, we often have a divorce between obedience and love. Some people say, well, I just really love God, and I love worshiping, and I love praying. And those are wonderful things, but in the scriptures, they're not opposed to each other. Obeying Christ's word and, and communicating love and doing acts of charity and service to our brothers and sisters and those who are in the world, none of those things are opposed to each other. Paul says that there are no laws against the fruit of the Spirit, and yet we divorce them in a very real sense. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Isn't it interesting to see that not only this love is being brought to the disciples from the Father, but the manner of obedience is also given to them. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The disciples clearly do not earn Christ's love, for they were recipients of it before they followed him or ever obeyed. And we know clearly that he knows that they will fall away that evening, and yet he says to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He knows that they will fail, and yet he loves them. Nevertheless, failure to obey Christ's commandments is sin, and sin destroys the capacity for communion. At the Table Fellowship Conference this year, we spent three whole days looking at Genesis 1 through 4, and it was a wonderful experience, and I've been reaping a number of benefits from just continuing to meditate upon Genesis 1 through 4. Think about what takes place in Genesis 3. There's a garden. It's a sanctuary. It's a place where God has fellowship with the man and the woman, and they take from the tree 
they rebel against God's command. They, they reject his authority. They listen to the voice of the serpent, which accuses God and his nature and his desire for them. They believe that God is withholding something from them. This, this tree with its fruit and the, and the goodness or badness of that fruit for them. They take from that fruit and then immediately that which was good, the nakedness and unashamedness of the man and the woman become, they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. And then from there, the communion is further destroyed as, as God has to mercifully exile them and expel them from the garden. They are removed from the place of communion with God. This is the nature of all sin. All sin, in some sense, causes communion to break down. Communion with God and communion with our fellow man. Every sin that you've ever had trouble forgiving has put a strain on a relationship. You can think of this as an aspect of sin in its very nature. Christ's desire for his disciples, however, is to have full joy in life. And full joy in life comes through obedience to God. Trusting the the Messiah's teaching in this point or in this doctrine, in this idea, severs the root of a million temptations. Why, Why does it do that? It is because temptation to sin is based upon one scheme of the enemy. Satan's ploy is to convince us that Christ unnecessarily and harshly withholds things from us which will truly satisfy you, you can use any sin that you have ever been tempted with, whether it be unforgiveness, uh, strife, pride, greed, whether it be some sort of substance abuse or some sort of tendency to be backbiting and anger and murder. All of those things are enticing to the flesh. And yet none of them bring lasting peace or communion or joy. Some sins, the fruit is immediately tasted as rotten. Other sins are temporarily pleasures, but then bear fruit of shame and guilt. Remember the garden. And so Satan's ploy is to convince you God's word, God's law, God's commandments are not good for you. He's keeping something from you in this area. It will be good for you to do this. And as soon as you take the bite of the fruit, it turns to death. On the contrary, sin deludes and dulls one's capacity for joy, bringing only guilt, shame, and hopelessness. It's a great error to reduce sin only to a rebellion against God. Sin is, in its essence, rebellion against God. But because God is the creator of his creation, sin is not just a rebellion against God, it also is a disharmony with the way he's made his world. And so you're rebelling against not just God, but everything in creation, the way that relationships are supposed to work, the way that your body is supposed to function, the way that we are supposed to work and rest in the world. This is God's world, and we cannot break God's laws. So 1 Peter 2.11 says to, wait, to abstain from youthful lusts which wage war against your souls. It's often a great help for those who are struggling against indwelling and habitual sins to begin to think of them not just as rebellion against God, but also as things which cause a grinding down and a waxing away of the soul. 
That, that, I believe, is a very helpful additional understanding of what the Bible presents sin as. We see this over and over again. We even saw this during our time in the Psalms earlier this year, that David said, when I, when I concealed my sin, I was melting away. And yet, when I confessed it, God, God brought forgiveness and new life. In truth, full joy comes from the experience of obedience, which can only happen if God is at work within us. This is why Jesus gives the disciples this test. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because God is the source of all love and all joy, and love and joy do not come from ourselves, obedience to God proves that we are his children. I want you to think about this. I I don't know if you've ever thought of what love is, but love is not a thing that we can manufacture. God is the creator ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. He is the source of all life. John says that Jesus was the light of the life of men. But the love that we share between one another does not come from us. It is not, a, it is not manufactured in us, but rather that love is simply a reception of God's love and a communion of that love to another person. And so when we obey Jesus' commandments to lay down our lives, that is only, it can only be fulfilled if we are truly recipients of God's love. And you can think of this just on a very practical level. How could you ever possibly be willing to lay down your life unless you believe certain things about the God who vindicates the righteous? It would be impossible, it would make no sense to the fleshly mind to sacrifice yourself unless you believed in the God who brings a future eternal reward. Knowing that fellowship with God is the only route to true joy, therefore Jesus commands his disciples to imitate his manner of love. Verse 12 of John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Do you see how massive this is now that we've, we've been on the height of the mountaintop and seen that Jesus has loved us in the same love that the Father has loved him. He now commands us to love others with the same love that Jesus has loved us. This is a fantastic and very challenging commandment. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Only in communion with God could anyone ever hope or obey the commandment to lay down one's life. To lay, one, uh, to lay one's life down for the sake of his friends, that person must be convinced that God vindicates the righteous. We learn of Abraham's sacrifice or willingness to sacrifice Isaac, that Abraham, the, the Hebrew writer tells us, that Abraham considered that God was able to raise him from the dead. Do you see the sort of faith that Abraham had? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We, likewise, we hear the promises of God and we obey in that belief. And so when we think about destroying sin, destroying pride, conquering lust, whatever is our chief aim at that moment or in that season of our walk, we have to root it in receiving God's love, receiving his promises, and then obeying in faith to that prophetic word. Jesus encourages their obedience here, giving them a test for authenticity that they might not be deluded or self-deceived. The nature of self-deception is very real, and by nature it is difficult for you to know that you are deceived because that's the whole point of deception. 
If, so, if ever anyone asks you, are you deceived in this area? It's very difficult for you to answer well, isn't it? You have to have some sort of standard outside of yourself by which you can answer. And that standard, according to Jesus and John's epistle, is are you living in love with your brothers? Are you behaving and operating in grace and in joy? Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't like to point the finger or poke holes, especially in worship songs. There was a very popular song in the last decade that boasted of, I am a friend of God. And I love that that is true for the disciples of Christ. The danger is that song doesn't provide any evidence that we are a friend of God. The, the proof or the evidence of reality with Jesus Christ is that we live in love, not only in love with him, but that love goes out to our fellow brothers and sisters. And it has to find a way. It is not just mutual words of affirmation. I really value you. It's laying our lives down. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Have you ever thought of what this verse is saying? What he is saying here is that a servant receives a command for a task. He is not told why. He has to do that task. You can think of it kind of like maybe someone working in a job. They are given a task and they are told why insofar as they need to know why just to complete what is essential. So, for example, if I was mowing my lawn and I had someone helping me, I might say, hey, I want you to root up that tree. I might not tell them that I want the tree gone because it's a bad tree and it's a dangerous tree. They just need to know I want to take out this tree. So working from there to the point of a friend, maybe the difference is instead of saying, I want this tree removed, you start to say, boy, I'm really concerned with this tree. I'm, I feel it's kind of dangerous. Do you think we should take it out? I've been kind of wanting to. There's a participation there. Do you see the difference between a servant who's just given a task and a friend of the one who, who is tending the land? There's a communion and a participation in that. The, the friend is brought into the why of the task. And so Jesus says to them, I'm giving you the knowledge of how I obeyed my father. I loved my father and therefore I obeyed. And he then teaches them how they are to obey. Abide in my love, stay in my love, persist in my love and you'll be able to do my commands. Jesus' love for the disciples does not leave them where they are but calls them forth into maturity. You see, it's not loving in our relationships for one another if we see some very significant deficiency in our brother or sister, we, by love, have to speak into that. And this is what Jesus' love for us is. He does not love us and tolerate immaturity or weakness forever. He wants us to become mature. It is a great fathering aspect to the love of Jesus Christ for his disciples. He wants them to grow up into maturity. He wants them to obey. He desires it. It is not like a tyrannical God who is just saying, do this so that you will be loved. 
Rather, Jesus Christ says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Abide in my love and become more and more like me. That's the sort of transformational love that Jesus has. While Jesus shows them mercy in forgiving their sins, his grace enables them to full participation in the knowledge of God's will. Jesus Christ's cross completely atones for all sin, but the cross also becomes, as the scriptures tell us, the avenue by which the Spirit is given. In, God, in John's gospel, he says, they did not have the Spirit yet, for Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit had not yet been given or distributed to them for them to live by the Spirit because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the cross does not just take away sins and remove weakness. The cross also becomes a transformation. In it, we see the love of God and upon receiving and and communing with that love, we then change in the aspect of that love. Nevertheless, these disciples must remember that the root of all of their service is not their design. Psalm 115, 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. Although they're full partners and friends with the Messiah, they still are obeying him. They're not obeying their own directives. Verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So desiring to apply Christ's teaching to the church, John writes an epistle and he brings one great central theme. He brings clarity and reality to a congregation full of mixture, a church indeed for all the ages full of mixture. He desires in his epistle to give deep assurance to those who are truly his disciple, Christ's disciples, and he desires to deliver from self-deception those who are not his disciples. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. It is not enough that someone today says that they believe in Jesus. One must have a sufficient knowledge of who is the Christ. During the Sunday school hour, Andy brought to, uh, it, to us a wonderful warning. He used a phrase that I had never heard or a term that I had never heard called fideism. Fideism. And what that comes from is the Latin fide, faith, And it's an exaltation of faith into a perversion of what faith is. It's a just belief, just have some sort of trust. It's a self-directed project in which people just believe God's for them, or they believe that Jesus died on the cross, but they don't have any sort of knowledge of who that Christ is. See, what John is saying is anyone who says Jesus is the Christ must have an understanding of what the word Christ means. Anyone in our culture today can say, oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in God, and God's real, and, and I do bad things, and uh, the cross is, is real. And that might be the end or the finishing thought in what they claim to be being a Christian is. What John says, rather, is they must believe Jesus is the Messiah, the one to come and save his people from their sins, and not only give them a new destiny of heaven instead of hell, but to deliver them from all the sorts of things 
which keep them trapped in sin, which is what Jesus is teaching about in John 15. There is a great danger in claiming, oh, I believe in Jesus and not having any knowledge of what that means. Paul warns us of this in two places in the New Testament. He says, if anyone comes and preaches another Jesus or another Christ, let him be anathema. That means raised up to God's judgment to let God deal with him. What does it mean if someone brings another Jesus? It means to present a Jesus that is contrary to the scriptures. A Jesus that is always forgiving no matter what you do. A Jesus that is just some sort of mythical feature who has changed the Western culture. A Jesus that is all grace and never wanting us to grow. Those are false Jesuses. Yes, Jesus is very loving, but at the same time, as we saw, that loving is a perfecting love. It necessarily is bringing us somewhere. So, John teaches, therefore, that the love of the Father becomes love for his children, and therefore the converse is true. He says that the proof of love is that we're loved by the Father, which becomes love for our brothers. So, we can work the logic in the reverse, if we do not love the brothers, we, do not, we are not loved by God. That is what John is saying, and he actually says that a few places in his epistle. As I said earlier, John desires to give great confidence and provide effective encouragement to the true children, spurring them on to love the brothers. The reason he explains that love for the brothers comes from love for God is that they would grow in their experience of joy and that they would really have a real flow of that love through them into others. I can tell you from my own experience in life that the things that have brought me the greatest true and lasting joy is when I see the love of God in other people being transforming of their lives and I had a very small part to play in it. That really is where true lasting joy is and that's what Jesus says. I tell you these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I don't know about you but I really want full joy. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So love is not a self-defined quality. I am not the arbiter, I'm not the decider of what it means to be loving, but rather God's commandments are. Here we see in this experience the union of loving God and loving neighbor, which I assert are two sides of the same coin. Now, what I mean by that is, of course, we have to first receive grace and forgiveness. We first have to be transformed. But as John writes and the rest of the scriptures assert and affirm, we cannot love God without loving our neighbor. It is impossible to do this. And Jesus himself said that the first and greatest commandment is like unto the second commandment, which he says is the foundation for all of the law and the prophets. He says all the law... And the prophets, the writings of Scripture, hang on these two commandments. What does it mean to hang on? It means to be dependent upon. Or rather that the foundation of all Christ's teachings, all of God's teachings and all of Scripture, is based upon love for God and love for neighbor. That they go together. You don't have two stones in a foundation, hopefully. You have one stone. I have this problem in my garage. I have a foundation and there are deep seams from the water over the decades and, and it's beginning to break apart. 
We do not have two stones of foundation. We have one stone, which is Jesus Christ. And he perfectly demonstrated what it was to love God by loving his neighbor at the cross. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That right there should cause us to repent deeply. I, when I face this verse, I realize I often think that God's commandments are burdensome. And yet John says they're not. They're actually extremely delightful. Just as Christ's yoke is easy and light, those who are the children of God should not The reason I say should not is because we often do. We should not say that they are burdensome. They are not in reality, and our experience must be conforming to that reality. God's commandments always bring forth a peaceful, joyful righteousness, not only in the one who does them, but also in the recipients of them. In this way, the way of joyful submission to God's commands, the faith of the believer overcomes the world. And here, as we come to the close, I want to apply this to the way that we think about the world around us. The world around us is not a loving place. I don't know if you've noticed this. This world has been infected with the taint of sin. The the stealing of the fruit from the tree has infected every place in the world. I was uh, with a brother, and we, I remembered Augustine brought up in his confessions. He and his fellows went at one time, and they jumped over a wall into a private garden. And there was a pear tree, and the pear tree, I believe it was a pear. I might be wrong about that. The pear tree had no ripe fruit on it. All the fruit was there, but it was not ready to eat. And he, he and his friends stole the pears, and then took them off and threw them into the air and smashed them on the ground, and I think they even fed them to pigs. And as Augustine continues to reflect on this, he confesses that I don't even like pears, and they weren't even ripe. It was theft for theft's sake. And interestingly enough, he then goes on to compare that to what Adam, our first father, did in taking from that tree. It was theft for theft's sake. It brought no good fruit, but only death. And our entire world has been infected with not only the acts of sin, but the thoughts and ideas and ways of sin. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God, everyone who's truly loving, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, I want you to ask the question, what does John mean by the world? The phrase the world in John's epistle does not mean the spherical earth. He's not saying that there's some sort of metaphysical spiritual battle which our faith is transcending the limitations of physical existence. That's what the Gnostics did to John's gospel. They read it in that way. We are not overcoming the natural limitations of our physical bodies or gravity or anything of that matter. We are not... Uh, interacting on a cosmic level even in this chapter, though the New Testament does say the church is doing a spiritual battle. Here in John's epistle, the world means the opinions of men, the ideas and what they value and what they treasure. The religious system of man, which is not one particular religion, but is all religions contrary to Christ, humanism as well as Hinduism, Islam as well as any other third world religion or first world religion, whether it be scientism, 
what have you, all religions which are self-justification projects and not rooted upon Christ is what John has in mind, the world's system. So the world's system or the world is the religious system of man which is opposed to the things of God, which exists in the hearts and minds and societies of men. I want you to think about that idea, that the world is not just something that sinners have in their hearts, it also is what gets expressed in societies. So to just provide a concrete example, in our world today, in our nation, we have legalized the slaughter of children. And so that is a doctrine which is held deeply in the hearts and the minds of men, and now it's encoded into the culture of men in our world. This is a terrible thing, and yet there's grace for this in Christ. There is forgiveness and radical love and restoration. However, the world loves it. Other nations are trying to, or have, embraced this terrible doctrine. I saw a tweet this week from U2, which was advocating the voting of, in the nation of Ireland, the repealing of the prohibition to abortion. And you think to yourself, boy, U2 is, is one of those bands that's even kind of acceptable among Christians from time to time. And yet we see this is the sort of way that the world system is expressed. It's not just abortion. You can think of any particular societal evil. In our nation at one time, slavery was the greatest manifestation of this. And throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, throughout all countries, the world system has been expressed in certain ways. So how does our faith overcome the world? It overcomes the world in the sense that we do not buy into the values and therefore do not behave like the world behaves. I think that's what John is trying to say here. And the way that we do that is our faith. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. This is going back to 1 John 2, just to show you what John is talking about when he says the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That doesn't mean having compassion for the lost. It means loving and having affection for what the world praises. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You can think just instantly of whole sectors of our society and economy that fit the, the pride of life or the lust of the eyes, the pornography industry, the, the sale of humans in sex slavery, the lust of the eyes the pride of life. This is what John is talking, he's pointing his finger on these things. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. Verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What does he mean by the world is passing away? He doesn't mean that the world is disintegrating physically. That w- this letter was 2,000 years ago. We live on the same earth that John wrote his epistle. What he's saying is that there is kind of a terminus that has already been cut in the kingdom of man, and it is raining out its last few centuries and millennia, and it is dying. And one day will be fully judged by Christ when he returns. The point is, he's saying that the world and what it values are not eternal. It cannot sustain. It will not last. Therefore, how does our faith overcome the world? 
The world system and way of life hates the clear and pure commandments of God. Love your neighbor as you love yourself is folly to the world's thinking because the world exalts self. It exalts pride. It exalts greed. So our faith informs us. The children of God joyfully receive his instruction about all of life and they obey in faith that his approval is greater than the temporary pleasures of men. Again, the writer of Hebrews expresses how Moses did this. He says that Moses escaped Egypt and he did not count the temporary pleasures of Egypt to be better than the pleasures of Christ. So he ran the logical, spiritual, theological calculus and he considered Christ is greater. That's how our faith overcomes the world. We're informed by the clear teachings of scripture, the gospel, which promises a great reward with God, and it enables us to lay down our lives. I want to look at just a few ideas here of what the world values. The world values power, might, and status. You can think of just any political election you've ever heard of or seen. Power, might, and status, yet the children of God joyfully lay down their lives for the sake of the poor, the lost, and the weak. This is the mark of the true church throughout the ages. She has always done these things. The world prizes wealth, greed, and consumption, yet the children of God make space for others and steward their money for generosity and charity. I'm not saying you can't have nice things. What I am saying is love considers its neighbor. And living in opulence while our Christian brothers, let alone the ones who are lost, live in deep need is pride. It's self seeking in a very real sense. The world treasures vain glory and appearance. Just think, if you've ever spent any time on Instagram, think about, I'm not saying Instagram's evil, I'm saying the things that are valued and expressed are image and their pretense and its physical beauty, which is fleeting. And these are the things the world values And yet as Christians, we have to overcome them. The children of God humble themselves and cultivate inward beauty, not just of personality, but of wisdom and of love for one another, for expressing that love in harmony and in peace. Apart from Jesus Christ, none of these things can be overcome. Their appeal is too enticing and further, we are too weak. Jesus taught us last week, Apart from me, you can do nothing. How do we overcome the temptations to imbibe or drink of the world's values and then live in response to them? We overcome it by our faith. And our faith, it cannot therefore be just some trivial, I believe Jesus was the Christ. It has to inform what we treasure. That's why I say it's so helpful what Andy brought out, this fideism, this idea of a quick, easy believism, because we cannot escape these temptations unless we are radically consumed by the love of God and transformed by that love to love our neighbor. To this end, John asks how overcoming would be possible except for Jesus Christ. That's why he rephrases it. Verse five, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Clearly, believing that Jesus is the son of God means receiving imitation of the way that he lived. Now, that does not establish our justification, but it is the fruit. It must be the necessary result 
of our sanctification. We must become increasingly willing by God's grace alone to love others because we're so radically, wonderfully, perfectly loved by Jesus. Praise be to God that he sent his son who loved us and defeated every temptation of the world, the flesh and the devil, and is transforming us to do the same. I hope that in exploring these texts, you have seen how radically loving Jesus Christ is. And as John said in, in 1 John 5, 3, his commandments are not burdensome. The way to combat the sort of sloth and, and, and lack of zeal for God's love and God's commandments is to receive once again and every day in a greater way the understanding of his radical love for you. There is wonderful and complete forgiveness in Jesus Christ, but he loves you much more than just to clean you up and make you do it on your own again. He loves you and then empowers you. So as Paul said, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So let's close. Jesus, we thank you for your teaching. We thank you that when we, who are so often like the disciples, rejected you and your who rejected you in your hour of need, we still have grace and forgiveness. We thank you for 1 John 1, 9 that says, if anyone confesses his sins, that you, Jesus, are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from every sort of unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you for the radical love and forgiveness we have in you. But, oh God, now that we have been transformed by your spirit, we desire to walk in your love. We desire to walk in the ways of your commandments. We pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts. We pray that you would send the spirit in, in, in ever-increasing measure, that we would abide with the spirit, that he would gain entry in our hearts, that our lives would conform to the image of the Son. God, we thank you for this radical love. We pray that you would help us, that where there are wounds in our lives, wounds in our hearts and our affections, that we would meditate upon your love and that that love would heal us and transform us to instead of being bitter and unforgiving, that we would be radically merciful and gracious to others. We thank you for the gospel in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.